On the show today, we have Shay Dunn and Rich Walters. How are you guys? And welcome to the show. We're good. How are you? Great, great. Um, so tell us about your story. I know, I know you have a Facebook group, and it's called From a Prison to Purpose. And mm -hmm. uh, so tell me how you came up with that and what's your group all about? Well, um, I was um, in active addiction for about 10 years of my life. Um, and obviously we all know that, you know, when you're in active addiction, you lose everything. And I, I ended up in, in prison. And whenever I was in pr prison, I was introduced to the 12 steps and I met my sponsor and um, I got close with God and it changed my life. And whenever I came home, I was just um, a fire had been lit in my heart to help tell others that there's a, a way out, you know. So we started the page and then um, the same court that sentenced me, I, I actually work with today and it's just taken off you know uh, so you do you do the kind of same things that that uh that people provided you you kind of help people out there in those same situations yeah i feel like if somebody um, you know because we all go to psychiatrists and doctors and, and they want to tell us something but when you feel like someone's never lived it it's hard to listen to them so i feel like if i had someone that you know spoke my language that says I've been there, it would have helped me a lot more. So I get to go and I get to teach them classes. I'm a peer supporter there so they can call me if they're struggling at all. And basically I just use my story to help them and um, direct them into a better way of living. Okay. And if you don't mind me asking you, like what, what kind of uh, drugs were you addicted to? And what age did you start doing that? And was it, and did you start doing that because of friends or how, how did you get in contact with that? Well, um, it was in high school. I okay. fell in love the bad boy and he um he did stuff you know he was a little bit older than me so i'd start doing stuff with him it started with drinking and then um prescription pills and adderall i did a lot of adderall in high school and then um ultimately i ended up on heroin and cocaine and the harder things right and uh do you think a lot of this stuff comes from uh uh, from families? I mean, because I know there's people who, like, their parents also did, like, meth or heroin and stuff like that, and they kind of, like... But in your case, it was mostly people from school, right? Well, my my father hid it for a very long time. Um, my freshman year, we were... My, I have two sisters. One's younger and one's older. We were very popular in um, school. We were very athletic. We got good grades. Um, my freshman year of high school, though, my dad went to prison for drugs. Um, so I think he was an addict that hit it well my entire life but my older sister went off to ohio state she had a full ride scholarship she never did drugs my younger sister will probably be the valedictorian of her high school class um and it was it was different for me um whenever my dad went to prison it deeply affected me and i got made fun of in school you know and right. i felt like i had to defend him and then i think i just started acting out after that right and what do you think about the epidemic of fentanyl? Do you think that kind of makes everything worse, where, pe where people could die quicker, right, because it's more it's potent? It's so scary to the point where, you know, when someone isn't ready to get help, basically, you know, it's we're here when, when you need us, and we hope you're carrying Narcan, you know, because... So for those who don't know, what is Narcan? Uh, do you want to explain that, Rich? Yeah, it's just a, it's something that reverses the, the effects of an uh, opioid overdose. Okay, so, so, so someone's uh, uh, overdoses on heroin. What is it, like a tablet or an injection, or what is that? It's, a na it's a na typically used as a nasal spray. Oh, okay. 
And so that essentially kind of like, what does it do? I've never heard of that. It just brings you right out of the overdose um, immediately. Now, some situations, people are so far gone um, that it'll take multiple doses of Narcan just to, to bring them back to life. I've actually heard of situations where they've had to hit a person with 20 plus um, wow. 20 plus times with Narcan just to bring them back uh, on just one overdose, obviously. And so there's, uh, do people buy these? Uh, can someone just buy them or is it something that emergency people give out? When well, um, obviously EMS carries it, but typically when it's handed out in the communities, it's handed out because nonprofits um, and uh, various grassroots organizations will raise enough money to then buy it uh, from like Narcan distributors, and then they'll pass it out to their communities. Right. Um, and why do you think there's a, an epidemic with drugs? Do you think it's it's because the mental institutions kind of have been uh, closed down and instead of using the mental institutions, we're using prisons now to treat people. Why do you think there's, there's so many people on drugs nowadays? It's just become so common. I can only speak from my experience that I thought I was better than, and I thought the addicts were just, um, you know, grungy looking people that, that were always like that. I guess I didn't ever think of like wonder, I wonder where they started out. So I never connected the two that if I'm willing to try substances, then I'm taking a chance of becoming an addict. So I think it's really, you know, mental health, lack, lack of education, lack of compassion, um, the, the trick, the effects of, of other generations that were addicts. And now they have trauma, you know, there's a lot of trauma in children that grow up to be addicts. Right. A lot of women have um, had sexual abuse that end up being addicts. Right. It, it, I feel like it's uh, it's almost like alcohol. It's just a way to cope, and, and I guess yep. that's just the next level of, of coping. I genuinely, back then, um, I genuinely didn't think that I was capable of, like, being happy. You know, it was um, self-medicating. You know, I just wanted to escape reality. I didn't know how to deal with my feelings. I was very impulsive. And the same way people have, um, you know, eating disorders or self-harm, it's just a different way right. to escape your feelings. What you got to understand is an overwhelming uh, majority of the population of heroin users started off with legal prescription I was going to ask that. Prescribed to them uh, by a doctor. Um, and so that didn't help any, you know. Uh, that kicked it off. Right. I've, I've met people who, uh, who, you know, got like a back injury and started taking uh, pain meds. And uh, got addicted to them. And then they, they, they couldn't pay for them anymore. They couldn't find them anymore. And you're right. They moved into uh, to heroin, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened was, was uh, you know, they started putting the doctors under so much pressure because the overdoses were, were starting to become so prevalent with uh, prescription pills that they the doctors had then put pr- restrictions on all the uh, medic, you know, on all their patients and they stopped giving out as many pain pills. And then, you know, when that happened, the price of pain pills skyrocketed through the roof because now supplies down and demand's still there. And as soon as that happened, heroin just came in like at the exact same time, it was a perfect storm and it was cheaper. It was stronger. It was more bang for your buck and it was everywhere. So let me ask you this. If, if, okay, if someone does su- suffer from chronic pain and uh, they can't get, uh, you know, like the, the pain meds from the doctor, is, is heroin, 
it's kind of a controversial question, I guess, to ask. Is okay. heroin a, a, a way to relieve your pain if you do it in a responsible way? Or do you think just heroin itself, the way it's made, maybe it's not as pure or something's wrong with it? Is it, is it not good? Even if you're... Unless it's pharmaceutical grade and it's being produced at a pharmaceutical company, you don't know what you're getting these days. So, like, there's, there's rarely, and it's like you can ask just about any law enforcement, there's rarely straight bags of heroin anymore. So, like, when they're busting people with these drugs and they're testing them, there's just a multitude of different substances within that bag of heroin. It's a ton of different things. And so there's, you know, good luck trying to find pure heroin. Um, it, it really doesn't exist anymore. And the sad fact about it is, is that pure heroin just isn't getting it done to the everyday user anymore now because now they have a tolerance to fentanyl, you know? And so they're wanting something strong. Right, right. And um, so, I mean, what, what do you guys think is the solution to eliminate or at least reduce drug addiction? What do you, are you, have you guys thought of like, hey, you know, on a societal level, like if you had the ear of uh, a certain uh, senator, uh, like what would you guys say to them? Well, to be quite honest, we have a bunch of different yeah. – it's like okay, – so we know what works for us, and we believe it could work for – you know, we know it can work for anybody else who's willing, um, you know, which is we got sober through 12-step fellowships. Um, but with that being said – um, you know, there's a bunch of different ideas out there. One of our best friends, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's convinced that the legalization of all drugs is the way to go the same way Portugal did. Um, and then once you do that, you take the black market value out of it, which essentially takes the cartels right. out of it. So now you have the crime rate dropping and then people are literally just buying drugs from the store at pharmaceutical grade for, for pennies on the dollar. And at least they know what they're getting at that point. In time. Right. Kind of like the uh, cannabis uh, uh, decriminalization. Um, well, how well I don't know. Happen? What do you guys think? Do you, do you guys think it's a, it was a good idea or not? Well, I mean, think about it. The, the war on drugs is a failed war. I don't think anybody can deny that. I think it's been a completely failed war this entire time. And essentially what it is, it's a war on addicts. And what they've done is they've made the prison systems uh, profitable. And, and they filled them up with, with addicts who, who, let's face the facts, jail and prison don't treat drug addiction. Jail and prison doesn't treat alcoholism. It doesn't treat the underlying issues that is wrong well, with what the, are the What are the underlying okay. issues that people usually have? What do you guys think? mental health issues well there's a lot of different things it could be mental health issues it could be trauma it could be some sort of spiritual sickness um i mean you know there's a there's a, a bunch of different things and then there's people who just accidentally got addicted who who was prescribed pain pills right. by their doctor and the next thing you know they are hooked and and they don't see any way out and there's a lot of things that factor into this where we're from we're from west virginia you know where um you know it's a poor state you know, let's face the the economy is in the toilet. Um, there's hardly any jobs, and so uh, it, these are areas like in the Mid Ohio Valley that's been hit the hardest. These are areas that at one point in time had a lot of middle class America. Okay, they had a lot of plant jobs, they had a lot of factory jobs, they had a lot of steel mill jobs. They had jobs where a guy could come in and make fifty to eighty thousand dollars a year, raise a family, own a home, have a couple of vehicles, and retire comfortably. All those jobs left. And went overseas, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs. 
And so now you have people growing up into this area where you have two choices. You're going to be either wealthy or you're going to be on welfare. And uh, so all those jobs went to China, right? I mean, that's that's pretty much the consensus on yeah. that. Yeah, and so, so you create a hopeless state, a, a hopeless area for people, you know, and an area where people had an out. They had an end game. They had something to look forward to, um, you know, graduating high school. Um, and, and they had jobs that, that gave them dignity. You know what I mean? They had, they felt good about making a living. They were proud to work for these, for these plants and these factories. I mean, these are, these are blue collar guys, you know, this is the thing that built America. And then you take all that out and, and, and you have nothing, but you have a lot of hopelessness. Right. It sounds like just really at the end of the day, poverty and mental illness and all that stuff that comes after that. And with the current administration, do you think a lot, some of those jobs have come back to the area? Well, I think one of the things that's came back to the area that's been most helpful in a, in a state like ours that's so full of natural resources and also Ohio, you got the oil gas, you got the, the oil and gas and all residual minerals industry, you know, that takes place. So now you have a bunch of pad site jobs. Now you have truckers who can drive the brine to the pad sites. Now you have pipeliners and you have unions that are all out here trying to work on this oil and gas stuff. But at the end of the day, it still doesn't. It still doesn't replace the hundreds of thousands of jobs that went missing. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's it sounds like a very difficult situation. It's economic poverty, mental illness, and I and I think my my opinion seems to be like they shut down lots of those uh, mental institutes, the psych wards, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, and I th- and I think they're using prisons to kind of do that now, right? What? Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so whenever I was in prison, I didn't get a, like a recovery program. I mean, um, really, sometimes I look back and think, how did I make it through that? How did I make it through those living conditions and literally being treated like you are not a human being? So um, I think like sending someone to, pris- to prison when they need compassion, you know, and instead you make them feel like they're an animal. And then even after I got home from prison and I was on parole and um, my parole officer was not well educated you know I was working for my court system and um he literally I I had been sober for years I had never done anything wrong he told me he was bumping up my supervision because I go to meetings that drugs are easily accessible to me and I I mean I had to have the people that I work for like have my back to get me off parole they're so just uneducated about it and all of my charges non-violent drug right it sounds like also poverty it's like a vicious circle you poor then you can make uh, commit crimes or you do drugs and you can make crimes and you keep going back and forth and prisons are for profit you know like there is money there so somebody is making money right they they have contracts for the uniforms and for the food and all that stuff and if you don't mind me asking you this might be private but what what were you uh put in uh jail a prison for um Possession, traffic, all drug charges. What was your scariest experience being in there? Um, well, actually, I never got in a fight with an inmate, uh, but there was a guard um, that I was very scared of, and he would um, come into the bathroom when I was in there alone. I remember ca- calling home and crying to my mom, saying that I was uh, So they have you know, male guards guard females in prison? Wow. Yeah, that's kind yeah, of weird, isn't absolutely. it? Mm-hmm. 
and he would like clear out the bathroom and say it was closed and I'd be the only one in there. And I remember just like, yeah, that's strange. like yeah, some people, that. some people make the case yeah. that, well, you know, if, if you're on drugs, if you go to prison, you'll, uh, you'll come off of drugs cause there won't be any drugs in there, but there's drugs in prison too though. Right. There are definitely drugs in prison. I had, thank God I had um, just changed my ways before I ever got there because I was in my jail for a while. Um, but yeah, so that's most of the like the drama and you know all that stuff. There's definitely drugs that they they get brought in by the CEOs. Have you ever seen Orange Is the New Black? Yeah. Okay, so it kind of is like that. And fun fact: the woman that wrote that um, went to the same prison that I went to. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, she went to. Mary she went. Brooks. She was an, an inmate in that prison. Yep, she comes back there and teaches a class about writing. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, yeah. that that's kind of helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. so if if you if you guys come, uh, I mean, if you guys come in contact with someone who's like been on heroin for like three years and meth, and you guys want to help them, they they I, I've noticed. I mean, not everyone. I'm not going to generalize everyone, but I've noticed some some people who are addicted to this stuff. Um, they want help, and they and they try. They stop for like a few months, and then they 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 have like a struggle in their life or a, or a crisis, and they fall right back into that. How, how can people stop that? How can people? What are the best resources people can go to? Because I know you guys are out in West Virginia. What if what if there's someone else in another city, another state? Like like what's the best options for them? You guys think? Well, we have resources all over. So I guess if they had been sober for a couple months, I would ask them, you know, are you going to counseling? Are you going to meetings? Do you have a fellowship? Do you have a church? I would call and um, speak with them. If they're detoxing, we would um, get them into treatment and detox. Um, a lot of the times it's moms reaching out to us for months first, crying and crying and crying. And then finally, usually someone has like a moment of surrender or something happens. But if you just get sober and you're just white knuckling it and you're just left alone with yourself, that's very hard to do. Very few people just recover on their own and say, I'm never going to pick up again. You have to have a fellowship, you know, of people um, that are helping you through it, you know, and that's where we see the most sobriety at is people that are very involved in recovery and very involved with their community. And what would you say to someone who came up to you and said, hey, I used to be a heroin addict 10 years ago. I just got in a car accident, and they want to give me opioids for my pain relief. Well, there's going to be situations in your life where you can't avoid it, I suppose. Like, suppose you break your back or something like that, and it's like, it's needed. What I'd say is, is that, God forbid, let's say, hypothetically speaking, that uh, that happened to one of us, right? Um, and, and what I would do is, at, at all costs, I would try not to take them. At all costs. Now, if I had to take them, I'd have, uh, I would have her watch them or I'd have my sponsor just lives two blocks over, you know, so I could have them hold on to the, to the medication and give them to me whenever I needed. And then just pray to God that it doesn't open Pandora's box. I mean, that's, that's where, that's where you're at. You know, you're just hoping because what we're taught is that we have a, a, a physical allergy to drugs. And once we put and alcohol, and once we put something in our body, we break out into what is known as the phenomenon of craving, which means we want more and more and more and more. And so that's what you have to be concerned about, whether or not that's going to kick off the phenomenon of craving. And, and so that's a great, great thing that you mentioned right now, where people want more and more and more and more. Do you think that's that comes from a consumer-based society where we always want more and more and more and more and more? Well, um, not necessarily because I've seen uh, I've seen um, 
people who are social drug users and social drinkers, and, and, and you know, they can moderate. I was never one of those guys. <laughs> you know, once I got started, I was off, man. I was I was getting rocked. It never mattered. It didn't matter what it was. And I, there's other people who can just like successfully use drugs uh, moderately, you know. And I was never that guy. It just consumed me. My sister understood the disease of addiction a lot better. Um, because she realized that she had a very close friend in college that would, on weekends, try, like, hard drugs. Not just, like, you know, easy drugs, but, like, very hard drugs. And then, you know, Monday would come, and he wouldn't do it for months and months and months. It was never a problem to him. You know what I mean? And then she's like, that was never the case for my sister. So if you don't, if you're, um, if, you know, if you don't have that addiction in you, you could periodically use just for fun, you know? Right, so it sounds like it's something to do more with the person, right? It's not like an addictive personality disorder, it almost sounds like. So it could be food, it could be cigarettes, it could be booze, it could be anything, really. And so it's, yeah. so I guess these treatment centers, do they help on the psychological aspects of addiction, too? Well, so what they do is, uh, let's face it, everybody's out there selling their treatment center like it's the, like the cure-all and it's the greatest thing in the world, right? right. The fact of the matter is, all their success rates are the same. All their outcomes are the same. I don't care what anybody says. And the truth of the matter is you just have to give the patient as much love and care as possible. Are there, does, do I favor a small treatment center over a big treatment center? Yes, I do. Because patient care is a lot better. It's more personalized. It's more intimate. You're going to get a lot of more one-on-one -on -one time with your therapist and so on and so forth. But what happens is treatment's just a spin dry. All right? You're going to be spin dry. You're going to spin dry from all substances. And then you're going to do some heavy therapy work. You're probably going to open up some things that, that you haven't opened up, uh, some wounds that you haven't opened up in a while. You're going to talk talk to people about them. It's what you do after treatments what's going to you know what's going to keep you sober. Um, you know, it's what you do long term that's going to keep you sober. Treatment is the greatest beginning to your journey. You have to do it. Remove yourself from society. Be there. Uh, come off of everything. Completely dry out. And then as a family member, you just got to hope and pray that they have some sort of moment of uh, divine intervention or moment of clarity or entire psychic change or something takes place while they're there. You know, otherwise, nothing's going to change because they got to be willing to want to seek recovery after treatment. Right. And, and uh, do you think religion helps? Going to church helps. Do you think that helps, too? I wouldn't necessarily say religion. Um, what I say, I think a spiritual way of living is the way to go. Fact. Um, a lot of addicts and alcoholics run from the idea of religion. Um, you know, it, it works for some of them. It does. It works for some. There's no one size fits all. You know, there's many different paths to people's uh, spiritual well-being, so to speak. Um, and, if, and if yours is going to be a very strict religious program, rock on, you know. But whatever it is that makes you happy and contented and keeps you completely off the drugs and sets you free from all your negative emotions and all this junk that you've been carrying around your whole life, by all means, continue to do it. And do you think removing people that that person has done drugs with before is an important part of recovery, too? Well, I think that's something that just happens automatically. Like, when I got sober and I came back from treatment and I was involved in the 12-step process... The guys I was using drugs with and stuff didn't want to hear me talking about prayer and meditation. There you go. You know what I mean? <laughs> they didn't want to hear me talking about service work. 
Right. They didn't want to hear me talking about the big book and alcoholism and the phenomenon of craving and the mental obsession. Right. So they kind of just fall off on their own. You know what I mean? Right. Right. But I think it's essential. Yeah. You don't want to be around people actively getting high or drunk all the time. But I do always tell people when you're ready to join us, it's not that I think I'm better than you. It's not that I don't remember where I came from. I'm just not willing to cross that line and, and sit with you. You know what I mean? While you're using. But when you're ready, like I'll come back and get you a boy out, you know? Right. So if, if there's a, a person who's been addicted to heroin for, like I said, another, my same example for 10 years, and then you put them in front of a table and you put heroin in front of them, do you think that's a good way to help them not do drugs uh, or kind of like the exposure therapy? I know it sounds, uh, it sounds controversial and weird, but I, I, you know, I like to think of weird things sometimes. What do you think? I've never experienced it. I've also never heard of anybody else experiencing it either. Um, I can't say I, can, I, I understand where you're going with this with it. And it seems like it could be uh, a fact of the maybe to some people, but to a lot of people, um, they're just going to sit there and they're going to drive themselves nuts obsessing over it. Right. Um, you know, and then other people have just been placed in this position of neutrality where they could just sit there and not have to worry about a thing, right? Because they know, like, they, they finally been restored to sanity and sane mind to where they know that if I pick that up, I know what's happening at this point in my life. I'm not going to be a fool to think that it's going to be any different this time. Right, because I think about alcoholics. Alcoholics, when they stop drinking, they still go to family events and there's beer there and wine. And so it's kind of like it's a, it's a struggle. They have to, like, learn to say no and block it out of their head, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, thank you for joining the show, guys. And where can people find more information about both of you? Um, they can come follow me on Facebook. It's From Prison to Purpose. Um, also, my personal page is Shay Dunn. So they can find me there and my story and all kinds of resources and anything else. And you can find me on Facebook, too, or on Instagram uh, as Rich Walters. Okay. <laughs> just my, it's just my name. Um, and, uh, if you ever need any help or anything like that, you know, anybody who's suffering from drug addiction or alcoholism, please message it, please message us or, uh, give us a call. My phone number is attached to the page and we'll do everything in our power to help. Thank you guys. Uh, it's been very informative. Thank All you right, so thank much. You, you have a good night. All right. Bye. Peace.